Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylox Hurricane Clips. When Louisiana had two hurricane landfalls in less than 24 hours, how storm surge made the Mississippi River flow backwards, why weakening hurricanes can still bring major flooding, and how a levee protected New Orleans from catastrophic storm surge. This is NTWC. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to NTWC Live. It is August the 23rd, Wednesday. Glad to have you all along today. We've got a lot to talk about today. Ben Schott, Chris Franklin are here. Of course, Bill Reed, Dr. Hal Needham are with us as well. We'll get to everybody in just a moment. We're going to talk about the anniversary of Hurricane Isaac and then wherever else our minds take us today. So I think it'll be an interesting program for you today. Before we get to that, though, we need to thank our sponsors who make this event a possibility each and every week. First and foremost, USAA. USAA has been a sponsor, gosh, for as long as we've been doing uh, the National Tropical Weather Conference, NTWC Live, other things the Storm Science Network has been doing for years, uh, student activities, things like that. USAA has been a sponsor, and and we sincerely appreciate the support of USAA for all they do for us and, and around the nation. Also, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. South Padre Island is the home to the National Tropical Weather Conference. We'll be back there live in April once again. We hope you'll join us live and in person. But if you can't, we're always here every Wednesday morning during the hurricane season for NTWC Live. But thanks to the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. Also, thanks to the Weather Company and to Weather Boy, a couple of organizations that have uh, joined in and really made the conference even more special than what it is. So we appreciate that. Host for the program, Bill Reed, Dr. Hal Needham. You know, there's 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 four of us that put this program together. I'm in deep South Texas, near South Padre Island. Bill's near Houston. Hal's in Galveston. Alex is in San Antonio. A tropical storm just hit Texas and didn't affect any of us, for the most part. So uh, let's get to Bill first. And, you know, Bill, I had at the TV station in West Laco, deep South Texas. We had four-tenths of an inch of rain from a landfalling tropical storm. What would you have at your place? Oh, well, uh, first, good morning, everybody. But uh, uh, the outermost rain band uh, that came in managed to line up right over League City and it uh, leaked 72 hundredths of an inch of rain into my gauge, which was the first measurable since early July. So uh, most people here didn't get anything at all and, and uh, the drought uh, persists. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll talk a little bit uh, uh, after we start uh, start off with our guests. We'll talk a little bit about what, uh, what we had with uh, with uh, uh, Harold the Helpful, I think we'll call it. Nobody died in it, uh, and, and and storms are going on. But first off, I'll I'll introduce uh, one of our guests, and then Hal will introduce the other one. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Ben Schott. Ben is the meteorologist in charge at the National Weather Service Forecast Office for the New Orleans Baton Rouge area down in Slidell. Uh, he uh, like me, he was a, a forecaster in the Navy, and then. Uh, uh, after the Navy, he went back to school, got an atmospheric science degree at the University of Washington. Uh, in the Weather Service, he has been moved around quite a bit. He's had offices in Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, Montana, New York, and Wisconsin before coming uh, down to uh, New Orleans. Uh, he came by his uh, uh, management training naturally with uh, two other meteorologists in charge jobs at Binghamton, New York, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hal, would you like to introduce Chris? 
I would love to, Chris. So excited to have you on NTWC Live this morning. Chris Franklin is the chief meteorologist at WWL-TV in New Orleans. Chris has covered some major weather events, including Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, Gustav, Ike, and Isaac, and most recently, the active hurricane seasons of 2020 and 2021, including Hurricane Ida. Chris has been featured on the Weather Channel and Fox News Channel and has two decades of experience. Chris, welcome to NTWC Live. Thank you all so much. And um, I'm hoping the rest of this season stays quiet for us in uh, southeast Louisiana. As you said, we've had some busy seasons in recent times, and hopefully we'll get through this one a little quieter, too. Chris, you know what's funny? I would go to like Florida and places like that, and everyone would be talking about South Louisiana. You know, you know it's bad when you go to other places, and they've been talking about the recent hurricane seasons. Uh, you know, just the hyperactivity y'all have experienced there for a long time. It's been it's been busy, and it's uh, it's it's time we deserved a break. So we're hoping for the another couple of quiet seasons. And as far as uh, home insurers go, we're also hoping for a quiet season, so more of these insurance companies will come back into the state and start to helping us out with some homeowners insurance here. <laughs> well, uh, uh, we've got all these memorable storms that have hit your area, but we thought it'd be uh, useful uh, to talk about one that probably most people outside of your immediate area around New Orleans have forgotten about, but it was a very uh, eventful and, and important lessons learned storm. So uh, uh, Ben, why don't you start us off with a, a overview of what happened with Isaac? Sure, uh, I'd be more than happy to uh, to do that. Let me uh, show just a couple, a real quick a presentation, just a couple of little interesting points that uh, I have um, uh, from uh, the event itself. Uh, as I went back through and, and started to to research, um, you know, Isaac uh, and its its impacts and and some of the lessons learned, I came up with like four or five things that I think are at least from I found from kind of a scientific point were kind of interesting with the storm itself. Um, I'm going to show a couple of uh, cone graphics. Uh, you know, it's something that the Hurricane Center puts out. Everybody's very familiar with them. But it kind of gives some interesting context and some things that were going on um, with Isaac uh, well before it made landfall anywhere uh, on the Gulf Coast. And so the graphic that you're seeing right now is from uh, Thursday the 23rd. Here we are five, six days before a possible landfall. And, uh, and you see uh, coming in somewhere between Mobile, uh, Pascagoula, if you were go use the center line, I know we tell people never use the center line, you know, but if you use the center line, that's where it's going. And so at, at this point, a lot of the models still had it going uh, more so in the north central portion of the Gulf. If I jump uh, just uh, a little bit later, um, like two days later on Saturday of that week, uh, you know, the track and almost all the models had shifted and had it going into the panhandle. Um, and so I, I use this example of don't let model consensus, uh, you know, overwhelm you every single time. Um, there were things going on here, and I'll talk about it briefly, but uh, this switcheroo that happened with the models put this area even at more risk. Because I think at this point, and I'm talking with forecasters who had been here, there was a lot of concern that because we were outside the cone, uh, public perception was is the threat was over for us. You jump just 24 hours later. Now, uh, you know, the ridge is moving in just the right spot. It's starting to push things further to uh, the west. And, okay, well, now we have us, you know, centered somewhere around maybe Gulfport, Biloxi. Uh, and then you jump a little bit later, 
um, 24 hours later or less, and now the landfall is going to be somewhere west of the Mississippi. So the quick version of this as a lesson learned is, is model consensus is nice. It uh, is something that we as meteorologists, you know, use as a way to give us support that something's going to happen, and it's going to happen the way that we think it is. But understand that sometimes, um, you know, the models just aren't right. And the interesting thing here was that there was all sorts of hints, uh, possibly with a smight, slight adjustment in the upper level pattern, which happened, it pushed it hundreds of miles further to the west. So there's a second part of this that I throw in there. Um, just as kind of a moving forward thing, uh, but I also want to throw in just, you know, small chances, but huge impacts. What I mean by that is, is if you look at this graphic, this is the wind probability of at least 58 miles per hour. Uh, Southwest Louisiana is in that 5 to 10 plus range. You look at that and people want to discount it. And so lesson learned is small chances, but big impacts. Do not let that small chance mean it can't happen here especially for something as impactful as this, as we know what it, what it turned out to be. Another lesson learned there. Moving through rain bands. The heavy rain bands were amazing with uh, Isaac. Um, and because of some other things I'll talk about next, um, you know, they became quite devastating. Uh, you can see there's over 20 inches of rain fell in New Orleans. Interesting thing with that is you would think that that created an amazing amount of flooding in the city. It wasn't as bad as it could have been. A, a lot of the heaviest rain band, believe it or not, if you were to look at it in a very zoomed in scale, and I've I worked with the River Forecast Center, which is right next door to our, our building here in our building, and uh, a lot of it almost the, fell right, right back to Mississippi itself, the river. Um, so there was still flooding in the city, but it, uh, it could have been a much more uh, uh, horrific for uh, folks in the city if, if, if uh it was set up just a little bit differently. But again, some of the flooding from from this storm was amazing. And that's uh, the next thing that I want to kind of hit uh, but beforehand. I guess I switched up my slides. I apologize. Um, this is one of the first times we saw the Mississippi River flow backwards. The surge was so uh, intense and strong that uh, this is the gauge that you see here. This is Bell Chase, which is right outside the city of New Orleans, just on the uh, uh, just south of the city for the most part on the Mississippi River. And for, for 24 hours, the river flew backwards. Um, it went up as far as Baton Rouge. Uh, it pushed surge that far north. Um, so this is one of the really uh, interesting things that come from the storm. We start to realize the power of water. A lot of times some people still discount the surge and the power of water. But this is another understanding that you think how strong this was. And this wasn't a Cat 4, Cat 5, but this still pushed the Mississippi backwards all the way to Baton Rouge. Um, this kind of ties into uh, the small chances but big impact thing. And it was one of my uh, things that I found very interesting as well. And this may have been the first sign of a new trend. There's been lots of studies recently about the slowing of storms as they approach the Gulf Coast. That's exactly what Isaac did, and, and that's why it helped the rainfall amounts be so tremendous. So uh, you see the radar on the side, but if you look at the track uh, on the left-hand side, you see the dots get really packed together really close as it approached the Louisiana coastline. And so with that little bit of uh, increase in intensity uh, and the slowing down, I think that also helped the surge that I just talked about really push up. Um, but it also, that slowing down, uh, you know, really increased the rainfall amounts. And we saw that with uh, recently with Sally. We saw it with Ida. Um, it may have been a contributing factor with Harvey. I won't 
uh, won't go exactly there for that one. But but some of these other events, we've seen this exact same thing happen, and it's been something that's been put in some uh, research documentation over the last couple of years. So these are some of the more interesting things uh, that I saw um, from Isaac. The one uh, last item that's not on here is the date. Um, for whatever reason, August 29th is the most cursed day in all of Southeast Louisiana, most likely. Uh, Katrina, uh, Isaac, and also uh, just recently, uh, Ida, um, which is a very interesting coincidence, but all on the same day. So those are some of the, the key takeaways, most kind of interesting things that I saw without digging into some of the other impacts, which I'm sure we'll discuss. That's interesting. The, the, uh, I've, I've been involved in a lot of conversations on the uh, slowing at, at landfall. It's very tough here in the Western Gulf to, to quantify it since our average landfall speed is generally around 10 miles an hour. So a 10% slowing down nine miles an hour. The one common thing I've seen though on the, and, and it looked like the same thing was happening with Isaac is that uh, coming across the, the Caribbean and, and, and most of the Eastern Gulf, it's, it's well entrenched in the, in the deep uh, east to west flow under the subtropical high and, 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 and the, the time it, it makes starts to recurve, it's coming out of that flow. So it's actually losing the steering current. Uh, actually, the same sort of things happened with Franklin uh, down in the uh, Caribbean the last couple of days. Uh, so the, the key to forecasting that is 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 uh, is to capture the timing of when it loses the the strong steering flow. And, and uh, Harvey actually, it, it, the steering flow went to zero. It was trapped in between the two highs at that point. So that happens fairly. Most of your record rains that you'll find in in tropical systems in Louisiana and Texas are, are that pattern. So that, that's interesting. And I had forgotten that Isaac had had done that. And a very good point about the. Uh, because of the location at all, even though it was uh, not a quote major hurricane, that extended period of of forcing from the wind made the storm surge that much worse. Yeah, and the other thing that's interesting about if you look at the geography of, of Southeast Louisiana, is you have these tidal lakes, right? And so you're pushing all that water uh, from east to west into Lake Pontchartrain and Lake Maurepas, and and there's a town called Laplace that there's no levee system. Uh, there's two major interstates that are right there, and that town uh, gets crushed in these events, especially when there when you get a storm like like Isaac here or, or Ida recently, where you have extended easterly flow. So much water gets pushed in there on top of the rainfall, and if you look, that's where a lot of the flooding and, and some of the flooding deaths um, occur, just because it becomes uh, uh, just impossible for. Um, when you throw on the rain on top of the surge water that's coming in there, it, it becomes amazingly devastating for that that area. Are there any, uh, do you know of any plans to um, uh, mitigate the, the issue around Laplace? They they are starting to talk of that the the Army Corps of Engineers I think have started some studies and they're looking at trying to find ways to end that. There's some uh, backwater channels where things have kind of worked around some of the things that they've done and they're looking to, to solidify um, that area to add some protection. Uh, because that area was like during uh, Ida also um, received almost uh, 15 inches of rain and had his you know, flooding people on rooftops. It, uh, it recalled a lot of really bad memories for the area. Luckily, no one, I, I believe, died directly in that flooding. 
but it was a pretty scary situation overnight when that really took uh, took hold even during Ida. So I know it's an area that desperately needs that type of protection. Yeah. Chris, were, were, you, were you here for, for Isaac or was uh, that before your time? No, I've been here since uh, I've been back home in New Orleans since 2005. So I've I've done them all since Katrina. So, yeah, Isaac, it was something when we were discussing um, bringing up this storm and, and looking back at its uh, its history and impact. There's always one or two key features I seem to remember from each of the storms that have impacted uh, southeast Louisiana. And, and for Isaac, the one thing that sticks out in my mind and uh, Ben just really explained that perfectly is the flooding in Laplace and what we consider our river parishes. It's uh, as you go west from New Orleans Metro, uh, Orleans Parish, Jefferson Parish, along Lake Pontchartrain, then you get to St. Charles, St. John, St. James. And as that water flows into Lake Pontchartrain from the east, it, it comes up against the, the levees, the hurricane risk reduction system is what it's termed in Orleans Parish. Can't go there. It gets to Jefferson. We have a levee system here. Can't go there. And it's able to move right into our river parishes. And as I posted this uh, discussion on, on Facebook and social media to get folks to watch and just also asked, what were your memories and, and what were the impacts to you? Just about everyone that reached out to me said it was the flooding in Laplace. And that is what I think most people remember from this storm. Also considering that, um, you know, after after Katrina, after Gustav in 08, you had a lot of folks that had flooded and, and heavily damaged from Katrina. They happened to move to some of these communities, which then flooded from what and, and uh, 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 talk that Ken Graham did at the conference last summer. This was just uh, one. But I thought uh, Ben's impacts perfectly uh, gave the perfect example of why no storm is just uh, when you break down all of the impacts. But as far as all those impacts go, I think what is was probably most remembered from this storm was that was that lake flooding in in Laplace and in the river parishes. Yeah, that I'd, I'd forgotten about the the damming effect of the levees that protect the Mississippi River side of the problem in there. It's very complex. Uh, was there a, a fair amount of warning for the folks in Laplace? Because uh, all I remember seeing is people said that they had no idea this was coming at them, but we hear that from citizens in every event. So I don't get, I don't get too uh, upset when I hear that. I like to hear more. <laughs> right, right, and and I think when when the Hurricane Center started issuing the storm surge graphics, and we were showing those on air, we're certainly showing the 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 estimates in height of what the lake water will get, and we'll kind of break down the lake even more so than just a a set number of two to four feet for all of Lake Pontchartrain. We'll kind of break it down uh, based on the shoreline of the areas that we know will be inundated with water. It, I think it's 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 one of those, it's it's one thing to say it, it's, it's another to actually see it happening. And I think the folks in Laplace, you hear some of those worst case scenarios and you hope that it won't be that bad. But then as Ben said, as we go through the night into the next day, all of a sudden you see just how bad it was in, in the Laplace area. And we had water on I-10, a, a major, um, not that this was an evacuation type storm, uh, but you have a, a major um, artery in and out of New Orleans and it it took on water. So the the flooding as, as far as the, the residential concern obviously is, is very important, but 
also the fact that you're you're cutting off a major artery into Metro New Orleans uh, with these type of events, and and it, for for lack of a better term, for just a one, you had this uh, major route cut off for for a time. Given the impacts that it had there, uh, it seems like there should be evacuation of a place like Laplace for for uh, any storm because of the time, lead time you have to give them to get out of there before the roads become impassable. And it doesn't take much of an east wind to start piling up the water into Lake Pontchartrain. Even if we just have a sustained southeast east wind, uh, non-tropical, you'll start getting those water levels um, increasing. Uh, my in-laws live in Venetian Isles, which is in eastern Orleans Parish. That's outside of the uh, hurricane risk reduction system. A stiff east wind, and they are already talking about the, the water in the bayous behind the house coming up and then water coming onto the streets. Obviously not impassable, but it does not take much of a strong wind to to suddenly uh, inundate uh, southern Louisiana or or metro New Orleans, parts of the uh, metropolitan area. Uh, Hal, you're, you're staring intently at the screen. Yeah. Um, well, Chris and Ben, I mean, you're talking about you get a persistent east wind, anything tropical that's centered south of you, you're going to get an east wind in Lake Pontchartrain. It's well documented that the lake water will respond to that very quickly. A lot of people were surprised in Laplace with Ida. I was actually in Laplace for Ida. A lot of people were shocked. They even said, we're, we're in FEMA's X zone. We're not even in the flood zone. How are we flooding? We know they flooded in I Ida. We know they flooded in Isaac. Question I have for you. The U.S. Army Corps map shows a 13-foot surge during Betsy in 65 and also the 1915 hurricane right around Frenier there, very close to Laplace. Do you feel like people have that memory of, you know, Betsy also would have flooded that area really bad in the mid-60s? Does that lore, does that memory kind of exist in local conversation, or do you feel like that's back too far in time and a lot of people are not aware of that? I'll let Chris answer that with him having more of a local take, yeah. You know, you know the, the references to Betsy, I think that was the, the last storm before Katrina that residents here referenced. Any, any Growing up and, you know, a weather nerd as I was, that was always the storm um, hallmark for southeast Louisiana and now this generation is Katrina and you think we we are starting to become almost a little removed from the impacts of Katrina and I know I'll go do school talks and I'll talk to some of the kids and they're ha they haven't been born yet so we're we're approaching now 20 years uh, post Katrina but for Isaac and then Gustav just a few years before I think that was still very much on on people's minds I don't know if it's just a, a, a mentality of New Orleanians and Southern Louisianans that it, it, we are a, a resilient people. We've gone through so much that even after a few years removed, we still think it's not going to happen again. It can't happen again. That was a once in a generation type so, storm, so it, it shouldn't happen again. But it is surprising to hear of the Laplace area being in an ex-flood zone, knowing that it doesn't take much to see that water from Lake Pontchartrain. Uh, surge into some of those river communities, so that that is surprising to me. Uh, but but um, for the, the 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 some folks that will say we didn't know, as Bill was mentioning, or we weren't prepared for it. Um, these these are fairly well forecasted events, and when we know a storm like an Isaac is going to take a path uh, that it did, we know almost certainly without really diving into the potential impacts almost, you know, number one on the, the list of potential impacts is going to be Laplace will flood. You get a strong east wind from a storm at that path, Laplace will flood. And and 
Unfortunately, that is still going to be an issue until the Corps is able to figure out some way to mitigate this. Before we go over to Ben, Chris, a quick follow-up with that. You're talking a lot about Lake Pontchartrain, Laplace. You know, when a storm comes towards the coast, people inherently want to really fixate on landfall points. So we're looking at like Ida, landfall point down by Grand Isle. How do you forecast and communicate that to get people aware of the landfall point, but also aware that in Southeast Louisiana, you could have a very broad geography that's affected in different ways at different different timing as well, right? We do a a parish-by-parish breakdown County by county as well. We do cover uh, three counties in Mississippi uh, for broadcasting. And and we break it down parish by parish. We'll spend 10, 15 minutes in, in one weather segment while we're doing our coverage to break it down of all the potential impacts with storm surge, winds, uh, rainfall amounts. We, we try and break it down because we do have a very varied geography in, in southeast Louisiana, southern Mississippi. And not everyone will be impacted exactly the same. Uh, we've seen that time and time again from each storm that in some communities, the the surge is going to be the, the greater threat. In others, it's going to be the wind, depending upon the path of the storm. And in others, it may just be the rainfall, figuring out where one of those bands will set up, sometimes a near impossible task. But we will break it down and try and get uh, viewers to see the, the bigger picture as opposed to just that that center line, that point. You know, I, I like the center line for the the simplicity of seeing slight adjustments in the track forecast. I I I, I show it, but I also explain to viewers don't pay a, a precise attention to that line. I like to use it for more as myself for a guide of seeing if there is a trend in the models and maybe the hurricane center is picking up on a trend. That's what I like using it for, as opposed to just focus on this individual point. And we do stress that within the cone. Even outside of that cone, uh, there is the possibility of the storm, um, you know, meandering one way or the other, even outside of that cone, that that is a, 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 what, a third of the time that that happens. And the impacts, obviously, will be far outside of that cone. So that's usually when we'll show the, the potential tropical storm and hurricane uh, wind field graphic on top of the cone to try and explain every possible um, impact uh, and, and effect that you will see from the storm. Sounds like you got your work cut out for you when anything's approaching. Each, each and every storm. That's why when when they'll ask me, how much time do you need? I said, well, how much time do you have? Because I'll take it all. Well, that's good stuff, guys. Let's take let's take a sponsor break real quick. And we'll be back to more questions with, uh, with you two guys. We've got a couple of questions coming in from online. We'll do that after our sponsor break. But let's take a moment to thank USAA, uh, a big sponsor of our program from the beginning. South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau will be live in South Padre Island once again in April at the Marriott Courtyard hotel right on the beach i hope you'll join us there once again uh, the weather company you know they make all the graphics that a lot of tv meteorologists show on the air and a lot of other things as well we appreciate what they do for uh, for for ntwc and weather boy weather boy uh the last couple of years has been doing scholarships a contest basically to bring in college students to the national tropical weather conference uh we've had uh, three college students brought in all expenses paid courtesy of weather boy to the last two ntwc's so that they could learn from the experts and spend time with the experts in the field each of them get to pick one of the speakers and sit down and have a one-on-one -on -one with them and that's all courtesy of weather boy so thanks to weather boy for being a big part of, of what we're doing we appreciate that sincerely um we'll get back to the questions and answers in just a second before we do that though let's get a tropical update bill we we've since we last met uh we've had stuff to talk about in texas but it kind of threaded the needle between you and hal and me and alex yeah perfect field goal wasn't it 
The, uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, I think I think we got a selling point for our conference in April. It, they can they can wrap a little vacation around that and go see the eclipse. It's the Tuesday after the conference. Exactly, it's the Monday after. So, see, I told you my ADD would kick in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know the timing is perfect on that. You leave here, fly, just go up to Central Texas or the Hill Country, watch the eclipse. Bill, thanks so much for the tropical weather update. Wow, it seems like a lot's going on in the basin right now. Well, y'all, GeoTrek update. GeoTrek travels the world looking for and reporting on stories related to extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. So this is a time of the year where we like to get out there and document extreme weather like a lot of you. I know a lot of weather experts and enthusiasts are going to be out there storm chasing over the next couple of weeks and months. And uh, today on the GeoTrek update, we're just going to talk a little bit about perspectives on storm chasing. So meteorology, extreme weather, it's all very exciting. We learn a lot. We discover a lot. But that said, we have to be careful when we're in these disaster zones. Keep in mind that a storm that may be exciting for you to cover could be very catastrophic and have huge life-changing implications for people on the ground. So we really want to find that balance between documenting the weather, but also connecting and, and if possible, being a blessing on those in the path of the storm. Uh, I wanted to point you to a couple GeoTrek podcasts that we've recorded over the past several years that really touch on this topic. And the first two I'm going to share about were GeoTrek podcast episodes 42 and 43 that we recorded with Chris Franklin, one of our guests today on uh, NTWC Live. These are called Remembering Hurricane Katrina with Chris Franklin. We did a two-part series last August. And Chris, I thought you did such a good job. You were talking about what it was like to be a young meteorologist, really fresh out of, out of school, covering a storm like Katrina there's some level of excitement with it, but you quickly picked up. This was going to have a huge impact on really a, a region where you were originally from. I thought you did a really good job of walking us through how to document and, and forecast meteorology, but also be aware of the human impacts and, and be sensitive to that. I, I thought you really did a good job on those podcasts we did, kind of helping people get a sense of how we can do really both of those things with an awareness of the impacts of people that are in harm's way. Some other podcasts as well. I wanted to point you to episode 49 last year, Voices from the Hurricane Ian Disaster Zone. These were recordings right from the ground of Hurricane Ian last year, and also podcast number four with Melissa Moon called Insights from a Tornado Chasing Mom. So all of these really get into the this um, this fine line with storm chasing on getting out there, learning about meteorology, documenting it, but also being aware of people in harm's way. And, and lastly, something I wanted to say, you know, we have to be uh, careful about how we behave not only on the ground, but also on social media. So be careful that, you know, you, you'll see posts of people saying, wow, hopefully this thing will get itself together or this thing will intensify. Be careful when we use language like that, because what's exciting meteorology, meteorologically could be a, a big impact to someone um, in harm's way there. I, I think about a interview that I did in the, in the path of, right after Hurricane Michael in 2018, and I was talking to some folks there that just survived a Category 5 hurricane hit there in Mexico Beach, Florida. And, and from talking to them, I asked them, you know, do you mind talking about this? For those people, they actually found it therapeutic to to talk and to do an interview. Where And then I'll find other people that, that really you quick, quickly pick up, they just want privacy. They're just processing maybe a, a, a loss of material items or, or or, 
a human loss. So I think there's really no rules in these disaster zones. It's just really important to be sensitive to those around us, be aware of where they're at. And, and sometimes you just turn the camera off and you're just a, a shoulder for someone to cry on and, and you're just a listening ear for an hour or two for someone that just went through something difficult. So anyway, I just wanted to point you all to those podcasts we've done in the past. It's definitely the heart of hurricane season. A lot of us will be out there over the next couple of weeks and months. But uh, I think those podcasts can really help uh, give us guidance and perspectives on storm chasing. Again, Chris, it was really interesting interesting to hear about you talk about the impacts of Katrina right there in New Orleans where you're from. And I thought I learned a lot from you when we were doing those podcasts last year. Anyway, that's an update from GeoTrek. Back to you guys. Thanks, Hal. We appreciate that. Great stuff. And Hal, I love the GeoTrek podcast. I, you, you just you ask the questions the rest of us wish we would have thought of. And and yeah, that's what makes it so good. And the inquisitiveness and, and just all the uh, the conversations go in places I wish the rest of us could, could think of. So thank you for taking us there. We appreciate that. GeoTrek podcast. Always, always good stuff. And, you know, you mentioned you know, the storm chasers coming to town and you get excited about them coming to town. But that does, you know, you know, Mark Suddeth was here um, two days ago and left. And as much as I like Mark, I was glad to see him go somewhere else. Um, and the same with, you know, Mike from uh, Mike's weather page was here and went somewhere else. And we're always glad to see them leave, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you're right. We talk often about how we talk about, Hey, this storm looks really good, which is, it may not, may, may not be the way to present it because really good to us is really bad. You know, look, it's a really good looking storm, which means it's a bad storm probably. And because if it looks good meteorologically, it's probably a bad storm. So, okay, let me get to a couple of the comments uh, and questions online. Then we'll get back to uh, to Hal and Bill jumping in there. Uh, Steve made the comment, Chris, after after you were showing the you know the the waving of the of the the track with the storm early on. He said that in the twelve years since the hurricane centers reduced the cone size. We know that. Uh, with improvements, but also not making those drastic shifts in the cone, making those shifts more subtle. And I, th I think, you know, Chris, you can address that because there was a time when those knee jerk moves were a little bigger than they are now that windshield wiper effect. And we don't see that as much anymore. Uh, uh, ben was showing the graphics on the, the, the dramatic track, but um, he, and maybe he can speak more on the uh, kind of the, the weather service and hurricane centers thinking on, on that. Yeah, Ben, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, that's kind of been a, a staple of the Hurricane Center, right, is to try to keep some consistency. You don't want to uh, do the windshield wiper and then um, and have it jumping back and forth and then maybe people losing it, uh, um, attention to what could be a major impact. So, um, yeah, that's and the, the cone size, it's been amazing. Um, again, the models are excellent. Uh, you know, I know I said watch out for model consensus. I understand that still small probabilities can matter, but the, the, the modeling has drastically improved over the course of the last uh, you know, uh, 10, 15 years, even since, uh, since Isaac. And then on, on top of that, even the intensity forecasts are getting a little better. They're, they're, not, they're not improving at the same rate, but, um, but that's been a, a huge benefit. So with the shrinking cones, because of the uh, uh, increasing in the accuracy, um, you know, it gives people a better sense of you know, when, you know, we really need to start t uh, taking action, um, then maybe when there was still a 400 mile spread at day five. Did you guys see anything with, with this? Because, you know, the timing is everything in these things. And it was Friday that that trend was going away from New Orleans. So people, oh, it's a weekend, it's going away from us, so nothing to worry about. So they kind of tune out. And then they wake up Monday morning, it's like, oh, crap. It's not going away. It's coming right at us now. Um, and, you know, we see that a lot. People touch the weekend. It's going somewhere else. We're good. And they wake up Monday morning and say, uh-oh, did you guys see any of that with this? 
I know from uh, uh, the television perspective, from from viewers, they absolutely do, and and they see a shift. And I think post Katrina, when the the models and the forecast really started to to ramp up in their improvement, uh, viewers as well as as us on air, we started to get a little bit more confident in those uh, changes. While they may seem sudden, uh, you start at least. You know, for New Orleans, you kind of breathe that sigh of relief. Okay, looks like we're out of it. And um, for those of us in news, I know when the newsroom sees you in the cone, that's their sounding the alarm. Whether or not you think you're really at risk of anything, it, it that doesn't matter. If you're in the cone, um, you know, the, the sirens have, have sounded. And I think that was the, the feeling in our newsrooms were that, okay, we've, we've gotten out of it it's a friday we're going into the weekend let's let's relax from this one and i there were still some models and you know there was it was that well wait hold on a second let's not discount it just yet it's still something we need to watch and maybe we do start to to back off on on um it whatever extended coverage we were giving it but i was actually looking back at some uh i keep fairly detailed calendars of uh, my work days and we began 12-hour shifts um, on August 27th. So it was, you know, a few days prior to landfall. And I think that was when we were kind of solidly in the cone that we began our wall-to-wall coverage. I don't know if we were necessarily on the air for 24 hours, uh, but the weather team was certainly doing 12-hour shifts. So while I think a lot of folks kind of breathe that sigh of relief, those of us in the weather office were still saying, well, just, yeah, that that's looking good for now. Let's see if that trend continues, and that's something we always really stress is, let's see if this is a trend which continues, not just one or two model runs. Let's go through a 24, 48-hour period. And at that point in in Isaac's um, um, position, still in the Caribbean, we still had time to watch for uh, um, those trends in the models. And I think as we started to see it approaching the Gulf, we knew a little bit more certain that uh, this one was not going to avoid us. Good answer. Good. That's, that's interesting. And one other question coming in from online, just during Isaac's final approach, did you see any indications or any signs of the Gulf Loop Eddy in front of it that was going to have an impact on it? Um, I don't know who wants to jump on that one. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I did not look at, at, at that to be real honest. Um, so I don't have a, a good, a good feel. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the thing is that as it approached was the, that kind of the item that I brought up, um, you know, there's been lots of studies recently of uh, the increasing uh, temperature of the shelf water. So that may have had an impact on why it was able to help continue uh, to uh, increase uh, in intensity as it approached. You know, there was probably other upper level things. You know, obviously there maybe wasn't as much shear. Some other things helping to exhaust the top of the storm that could help that as well. But, but uh, you know, the biggest player, again, was just that idea that it went from uh, 12, 15 knots down to five as it approached and then stuck there. Uh, for a good 18, 20 hour period, um, end up being the, the, the intense rainfall maker um, as it, it just kind of stalled out. Because it really had two landfalls. Uh, there was a landfall in Plaquemines Parish. Uh, here we kind of call it down towards the Crowfoot or the Mississippi, where there's three passes on the on the far end there. If you look at it, it kind of has a, a three prong look to it. And it made a, a landfall there, and then it made another landfall, um, uh, you know, a little bit over closer towards uh, Terrebonne Parish, I think, or, uh, or Grand Isle um, on the 29th. So, you know, that was kind of the bigger take, but I didn't get a chance to look to see if, uh, if the loop had any kind of uh, help there with that intensification um, in that last 24-hour period. 
I want you to jump back in, lead this second half hour for us. Hey, y'all, um, I had a question for y'all. I want to pick your brains because you're there in the in Southeast Louisiana. So um, in 2008, I was a brand new grad student at LSU and we were doing field work in Gustav. We take I-10 towards New Orleans and all of a sudden we're stopped by the police at the Gramercy exit. And here comes Contraflow out of Metro New Orleans. I, I was brand new to the Gulf Coast, never saw anything like this before. So a mandatory evac through a lot of uh, New Orleans metro area. Then, you know, um, more than a decade later, here comes Hurricane Ida. It seemed to me like a similar landfall point down by Grand Isle, but no mandatory evacuation. What's the difference? Why the mandatory evacuation for Gustav and not for Ida? I mean, really three things come to mind. I mean, for one, Gustav seemed like a much better developed storm pre-landfall way out in the Gulf. Did it just give more time to have more certainty and, and do the evacuation? Or when Ida came, did they say, hey, that, that mandatory evac for Gustav wasn't really necessary. We're not going to do that for a storm like this anymore. Or number three, well, were there some influences of COVID as well? Because Ida was kind of in the COVID era where maybe they were concerned about sending people to evacuation centers. Bit of a complex question there. Really concerned, uh, really uh, wanting some clarification. Why the mandatory evac for Gustav in 2008 and not for Ida in 2021? I could probably give you a hint on the Gustav because I was involved in the conversations from the hurricane center with uh, uh, state and local officials there. I think there was an abundance of concern of what had happened in Katrina just three years earlier. So they were going to err on the, on the absolute uh, side of caution because the, the, one of the lessons learned is you, you, you can wait till it's too late and you put more people in harm's way. So the decisions have to be made uh, long before you're certain on the storm, it was forecast when it came off of Cuba to re-intensify to a Cat 4. So I'm pretty sure that that was the driver uh, in Gustav on the evacuation. Now, you guys can tell me what happened with Ida because I wasn't part of it. <laughs> well, I, I, I was. Um, so I, I sorry to preempt Chris, but, you know, um, for Ida, as the roll-up to it, I spent most of my time in Baton Rouge, uh, embedded with the, the emergency management uh, and governor staff, et cetera. And so a lot of that was going on around me. Um, I, I probably won't disclose everything just because I don't feel like that would be fair to them. But, uh, but what I can say is, uh, you know, this is something that we've been talking with the emergency management uh, here in the local area um, nonstop over the last couple of years. And, and, and what that is, is these uh, quick, fast spin up storms uh, like you know Michael uh, you know was one uh, uh, you know and Ida where uh, you know if you look at a lot of the emergency management plans and I'm gonna try to stay in my lane as a meteorologist but I work directly with them all the time so I'm pretty familiar um, but I you know uh, if I've said something wrong and someone is in the EM community you want to correct me I'm I'm hundred percent okay with that you know they, a lot of the plans were built off of uh, having 120 hours um, uh, and and the reality over the course of the last uh, you know five to seven seasons is you you may not have that you may not even have 72 hours from a going from a weak tropical storm to a category four and we've seen multiple instances of that in the Gulf in just the last uh, few seasons so you know when it comes to Ida uh, they didn't have time because we were talking on a uh, Friday afternoon, it went from a, a, a one now forecasted to be a four, and you have less than 72 hours to landfall. You have to coordinate because 
uh, New Orleans is so close proximity wise to Mississippi, they're having to coordinate with Mississippi um, to make sure to help push people out in that direction. So there's a lot of extra coordination that they have to do. It's not as simple as just the city of New Orleans or the state saying, we're just going to do this. And you have to work with the surrounding uh, communities, states and, and their uh, folks. So there just wasn't the time, um, which was is, uh, is an interesting thing. But that's the thing that we've been exercising with our emergency management partners moving forward is what's going to be the plan B, the plan C, because the 120 hour plan that you know, roughly some people had had in their pocket, um, doesn't work anymore. Chris, any insights? No, you know, as, as Ben said, he, he more in, in the lane of emergency management than I am. And, uh, what he said is, is everything that I've heard, the, the amount of time needed, um, for, for the inaction of ContraFlow is, is so great that we've seen just in the past and, and I referenced um, a presentation Ken Graham did again last year is that so many of these storms, all of the what historic um, major landfalling U.S. hurricanes are for the most part all tropical storms three days prior to landfall. So as you're talking needing three plus days uh, to even begin um, contraflow, there is no way anyone would agree to start enacting contraflow if we had a depression coming off of Cuba, but it's expected to become a, a major hurricane. I don't think you'd be able to convince any emergency managers that you would have to start uh, contraflow. And, and I know just in, in, in my discussions with some officials from either the city or the state level with emergency management, uh, you know, they've tried either tiered evacuation where we began on the coast and some of the more vulnerable areas that are outside of the uh, hurricane risk reduction system and then begin kind of moving that um, toward the, the metro area. You know, our North Shore parishes and in much, much of Mississippi away from the coast, say north of 10, evacuations aren't necessarily needed uh, for even some of the stronger storms. So I think it's it's more of the, the time element. And, and as Bill said, I think perfectly, with Gustav, we were only three years removed from Katrina. I don't think they were taking um, any. Um, um, where I'm looking for here, it, they, they were they were not um, going to uh, allow for for folks to sit in the path of another major hurricane three years removed from Katrina. So I think maybe it was a little bit more of an urgency because of Katrina. Whereas Ida, as, as Ben said, we just didn't have the time that is needed to enact underlaws. I, I know I just was actually on a roundtable discussion with um, the, the mayor, city of New Orleans, um, emergency manager, and someone from the governor's office, and they've said that the time and and logistics of contraflow, it's not as easy as people think. It is not just putting cones up on interstate exits and, and shutting down um, certain on and off ramps and then redirecting traffic. It is a logistical nightmare. And, and the city said it is absolutely a a last resort. That would be the the last thing that they would do would be to enact contraflow. It sounds like both you guys are saying you need a lot of time to do something like contraflow and a mandatory evac. And when you have a fairly high amount of uncertainty, 72, 96 hours out, who's going to make that decision to do something so drastic, right, when there's so much uncertainty in a storm like Ida? And you, and you, and you I don't know, I, from, from Ben, I, it may be that, you don't really see contraflow again. I, I don't know. I'm just, I may be speaking out of turn and out of my link here, but it may be that it's it's so complicated. And unless you have a, a 
well-developed storm that's five days out and everything is crystal clear in that forecast, which we know never happens, you, you may never see a, a contraflow type of an event like we saw in, in, in Katrina and in Gustav. Again, it may be more like tiered evacuations that we start um, initiating that along the coastline. And usually we do that. We'll start the, the voluntary evacuations for a lot of our uh, barrier islands and some of those uh, outside areas and then begin more of the va- mandatory evacuations for all the unprotected areas. Bill, any thoughts or perspectives? I hate to put something out there without an answer to it, but I, we somehow need to reinvent what what evacuations are because it's becoming untenable to really do get the, uh, the, the people that really need to be moved out of harm's way and not just near the coast, but people that that are, are elderly with medical issues that being without electricity could be fatal to them. All those, all those other complicating factories factors take so much time. Uh, and we flip flop on the contra flow. You, you don't have it. And the storm hits and a bunch of people are trapped and then you go through all the trouble to develop the thing. Next storm, you exercise it. It's not such a bad storm. You come back and say, we're never going to do that again. So there's something different we have to do. And it's outside of my my feeble brain to figure out what that is. Hey, guys, a quick follow-up question. So the night before Ida, I'm in, you know, New Orleans and points west. And so there's not a mandatory evacuation, but the roads are wide open. Like any one person could get in their vehicle and drive. Like Chris, so when you're, you know, you're you're not through federal government. You you're you're on the air. You're you're kind of open. You're not really, I guess, constrained with like what the official orders are or something like that. Will you ever mention like you may want to consider um, relocating if you're in a certain area? I mean, how do you, how do you? I know it's a really a tightrope you're walking there because you don't want to make people unnecessarily panic. But at the same time, if things are ramping up, if you have rapid intensification in a storm like Ida. Are there times where you say, I know we're not under under mandatory evacuation, but you may consider taking action in certain areas? Like, are there ways that you maybe have handled that? No, No, absolutely. And I I wish I had the graphics. I I do have a presentation somewhere on my computer uh, that I did about um, Ida. And I absolutely, I had a series of graphics that we broke down um, leaving. And if you should leave, we kind of broke down um, in an air, you know, where, what, what, um, 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 Trying to think, think of the word here. What, what are you around? If you're, it was one of those. If you're, if you're comfortable staying, then stay. If you can live without air conditioning and power for, you know, a couple of weeks at least, then you can stay. If you're not around trees, if you're outside of the um, levee system, obviously you need to leave. But if you feel as though you're in higher ground, uh, you don't need to. But then for those that do, we provided a map of the southeast and kind of gave the directions of where to go and where not to go. And then I also broke it down to, I can't tell you what to do, but I'll tell you what I'm doing. And what I'm doing is I'm sending my wife and children out of the city. And because of Ida, I felt safe that uh, they were going to Destin, Florida. And they wanted, as a matter of fact, kids, they had a place with a pool and kids said, you know, no issues at all. But we kind of put a graphic together with some qualifiers of what you would um, need to meet in order to perhaps stay. And again, a lot of that was just if you're comfortable. If not, this is where you you could go and should go. And we kind of outlined the directions of where where that would be best. Coming up on the end of the program, great stuff. Guys, we really appreciate it. Let me finish with this. If we knew then what we know now, what has changed since the storm? Uh, ben, why don't you give a first shot at that? What's changed since since Isaac? Uh, I think the the biggest thing is um, is 
I think the the heavy rainfall bans and the flooding, you know, like we talked about earlier, uh, everyone so focuses on the wind uh, and maybe the surge. But uh, I think it was uh, the biggest awareness around here that you got to understand the heavy rainfall um, can be just as devastating as any of the other impacts. The, the modeling has gotten far better from both the the all the all the hurricane models, but also the forecasting scale of the hurricane center. And we always say, you know, focus on the hurricane center's forecast. Everyone now with social media and the internet has access to all of the computer models that we look at, but they are able to look at those models without the knowledge and education in meteorology. So we always tell them to focus on the hurricane center's forecast, which outperforms all of the models every single time. And I think more viewers and more of our residents are starting to understand some of these uncertainties, even as the forecasts have improved. I think people still understand the there is the inherent uncertainty uh, with uh, forecasting these these type of events. Great stuff. How what we learned today? I mean, Southeast Louisiana is so complex, such high impacts. I really enjoyed hearing from both Ben and Chris, and just learning from their perspectives today. I think it would, it's just so valuable because it's such a high impact area. Uh, yeah, listening to all this, a, a sum up that I would have that we've learned since Isaac is that we've gotten. Uh, uh, good enough is, is probably the word I would use with the science of the forecast and even the science of how to put out a warning, but that's not the problem anymore. The problem that we need to be working on is how to solve the vagaries of human nature so that we can get more people to do the right thing. Great. Thank you, Bill. Ben Schott, Chris Franklin, gentlemen, thank you for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. Fascinating insight into a system that you guys are right in the middle of, not just one, but several, but in particular Isaac and many that have come before and after that storm. So we appreciate your time. Hope you come back and join us again sometime in the future. Absolutely. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, guys. Bill, Hal, great job as always. Great questions, great insight uh, from both of you guys. So we appreciate that. Also, uh, we appreciate our sponsors who make this program a possibility. USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, The Weather Company, and Weather Boy. Next week, Mark Levitan and David Lawson will be with us. We're going to talk about hurricane resiliency and wind insurance. That's coming up next Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. right here on NTWC Live. Until then, thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of NTWC Live Hurricane Center Podcast. If you did, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And join us next week. This is NTWC Live.